0: It was likely a difficult time, the time in which Jude was writing. To be clear, we are not given an exact date as to when Jude wrote this epistle, but there are variables that would suggest that Jude wrote this epistle in the 60s. Not the 1960s, but the 60s, before 70 A.D., now there's there's debates and there's disputes as to when he wrote it, but however, there are variables that would suggest that it was around that time, maybe even around 67, 68 AD, somewhere around there. There are similarities. You would notice this. If you read 2 Peter and you read Jude, there are a lot of similarities between the two, and there is significant internal evidence. Although many people would think that Peter wrote his second epistle before um, that Jude wrote his epistle before Peter wrote his second epistle. There's a lot of internal evidence, or at least some, to suggest that Peter wrote 2 Peter first, and then Jude wrote his epistle after. I say that because when you look in 2 Peter chapter 2, you see Peter warning the church that there would be false teachers who would arise and be amongst the people. When you come into the epistle of Jude, you see that they have already infiltrated the church. So what Peter spoke of happening at some time in the days ahead, Jude is seeing as a reality that has happened. Also, when you look in Jude verses 17 and 18, he makes a direct allusion to Peter's words in 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 3, while also saying that the source of those words was an apostle. So Jude might be writing, I can't say this with definitude, he might be writing while the storm of Nero's persecution raged. Or, he might have been writing as the flames of persecution began to diminish somewhat with Nero's death. In either case, or even in the possibility of another. There's no doubt, leading up to the days of 70 A.D., if you listen to the teachings that I did on the Olivet Discourse, you could see that the days leading up to 70 A.D. were filled with turbulence on a whole bunch of levels. So Jude is writing during a time at some level, in some way, shape, or form, where there was a decent share of turbulence in the world in which he was living. And I think perhaps what's very instructive for us is that when you read Jude's epistle, he is neither drunk with the details of the evil that's around him, He's not so intoxicated with what's going on in the world around him that he cannot focus on that which is the priority. Nor has he been so injected with lies that his spiritual discernment was like a weakened innate immune system that couldn't detect and eject pathogens. Rather, his mind was set to contend for the truth. His concern was for the body of Christ and for the purity of the faith given the infiltration of apostates and his eyes were on the proper ways to contend for the faith in the moment, in the midst of infiltration of apostates and he had his eyes not only on the need of the moment to contend for the faith, but you'll see as we go through this epistle that he had his eyes on what was to come, the glory that awaits the people of God when Christ returns and the judgment that awaits the apostate and others who reject the gospel yes there's glory enjoyed for the believer who is absent from the body and present with the Lord and yes there is judgment for those who have rejected Christ and die now but there's the consummation of glory and the consummation of judgment that awaits now you probably don't need me to tell you this but this is a short epistle and yes it's not only a short epistle it could be easily overlooked given the fact that it's a short epistle, and given the fact that it's found near the end of the Bible, right before a book that captures, understandably, the imagination and the minds of many people, the book of Revelation. But I think there's great timeliness in studying this epistle, both by way of Jude's instruction and by way of his example. I say that because I think there's a lot going on in our world. And it seems like, though I've said this to you in the past, and I might even say it You know, frequently, it does seem as though the things that are going on in our world, it seems like those issues that could be of concern seem to mount and they're multiplying. That's subjective, and you might say, no, they're not doing that. But others would say, yes, they are. And I think there are a lot of things that could cause people legitimate concern in our world. When you see things like mRNA being found in the breast milk of a mother who nurses her child, and then you hear anecdotal stories, of doctors who say after a mother had received a second injection and she was breastfeeding her child and that child had to go to the hospital and died with blood clots shortly thereafter. If you look at the VAERS data, that reports all of the, uh, uh, what well, is likely a small portion, a small portion of severe effects that people have had post having been vaccinated, that's of concern. And that's likely a small portion of what's been reported because a lot of people have issues, either severe or not severe, and they don't report it. You see what's going on in the economy. You see what's going on in the world geopolitically. Talk of a nuclear attack and things of this nature. You see all these things going on, and I'm not saying they're not important. There is importance in being aware of those things, and those things at some level are are affecting people's lives in some way, shape, or another. But what I think is so instructive about Jude's epistle to us is that he is living in a time where there's so much that's going on. Now, granted, some people might have been more aware of what was going on in Rome than others. Other people might not have been so aware, but there were a lot of things going on. And you see Jude's priority, the priority above all things is the faith and the purity of the faith and the church and the purity of the church. That was the priority. And I find this epistle so instructive in that capacity and yet alone many others the main thing the main thing is the gospel and the more things happen around you the more you're going to be tempted to not make the main thing the main thing and i'm not saying those other things are not important but i'm telling you you will be more and more increasingly tempted to not make the main thing the main thing and the main thing is the gospel and the truth that's inseparable to it and the main thing right alongside of that is the purity of the church that Christ purchased with his own blood. And then adjoined to that is trying to be a vessel by the grace of God to reach out to others so that they might come to know the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see all of that in Jude, in 25 verses, you'll see that. I think it's also important for us to note that sometimes contending for the faith will look like being a watchman on the wall like Ezekiel was, or writing an epistle that's largely dedicated to confronting apostasy even as Jude did. Contending for the faith can look like that. It did for Ezekiel, it did for Jude. And that'll bear itself out as we get into these opening verses. We begin in Jude verse 1 where we read, Jude a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. So here we see Jude first identify himself, and then we see him identify his readers, uh, the recipients of this epistle. First, he identifies himself. His name was Jude, or at least that's how it comes across in our English translations. Jude was a popular name. The Hebrew equivalent would have been Judah, and it's understandable that it would be a popular name, seeing as it was connected with the tribe from which the Messiah would come. In New Testament Greek, however, the name Jude is actually Eudas. Sound familiar? Judas. This Judas is not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, the apostle who betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Hence, perhaps, the English rendering of the name is Jude as opposed to Judas, lest many readers be confused and think they're reading the epistle of Judas Iscariot. You're not reading the epistle of Judas Iscariot. It's a different Judas. Who is this Judas? This Judas appears to have been the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, referenced in the Gospels in places like Matthew 13:55 or Mark chapter 6, verse 3. You'll see Jesus' brothers identified by name in those passages. He had a brother, a brother named James and a brother named Joseph, a brother named Simon, and a brother named Jude or Judas. Now, he identifies himself here as the brother of James because that would distinguish him from other Judases, as the brother of James. And James was a well-recognized figure in the early church, and the reference of James' name would not even need further description. People would know who Jude was because they knew who James was, and James was also the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, not James, the son of Zebedee, this James, the brother of James, appears to have been James, the brother of Christ. Now, Jude, like James and his other brothers during Jesus's earthly ministry, didn't believe in Jesus. You think about this, you see it in John chapter 7 verse 5, even in the midst of Jesus doing his earthly ministry and doing amazing things like turning water into wine and so on, yet we're told in John chapter 7 verse 5, for even his brothers did not believe in him. Think how hard in their hearts were, but that's the hardness that you and I knew before we came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They could see what they saw or hear what they hear, hear what they heard, and still they did not believe in him. They were not found at the cross when the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, likely being ashamed to be identified with such a one who was regarded as a malefactor, who was regarded as a um, criminal, for such a one who was regarded as being cursed, seeing the fact that he was hanging upon a tree. But interestingly enough, when you go to the book of Acts, something had changed in between the crucifixion and the, Jesus and the day of Pentecost for the Spirit will be poured out upon the church. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we're told that among those who were gathered in one accord in prayer and supplication, there was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, we're also told, and his brothers. Another clue as to what happened in between, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, that the risen Christ among the appearances he made when he was risen from the dead, he appeared personally to James, his half-brother. And so somewhere along the line, Jude, James, and the rest of his brothers came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, although this Jude was related by blood to Jesus, likely being his half-brother, he didn't identify himself, if you look at the text, as the half-brother of Jesus Christ, but rather as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now this connotes quite a bit, and I won't belabor this point, but there are quite a few things that you can note from this. The first of which I would say is that while it doesn't diminish the preciousness and importance of earthly relationships, it does at least implicitly put them within their proper place. The relationship that Jude had with Jesus spiritually Seeing him as the Christ, seeing him as the Messiah, and seeing himself as the bondservant of the Messiah was of much greater importance than the biological connection that he shared with Jesus through Mary. I think that's instructive for us in many ways. You see Jesus even do something similar. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, Jesus puts earthly relationships in perspective. You could look at those verses and you could see that bear itself out. Second, I think one of the things for us to notice is that Jude wore the title of a bondservant, a bondservant. He recognized that he was not his own, but that he belonged to the one who purchased him with his own blood. The fact that he was Jesus' bondservant suggests very clearly that he saw the supremacy of Christ and he submitted to Jesus' lordship. And one of the things I think that's important and instructive for us is that this self-identification, Jude identifying himself as a bondservant of Christ, is in stark contrast to the apostates, those who were in the church but not of the church, those who professed the faith but kind of lived in, um, in opposition to the faith that they professed. This identification of bondservant is in stark contrast to those individuals. I say that because when you look at verse 4, you see that they did not truly and rightly acknowledge the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ, and in verse 12 you see that they served only themselves. I think this is instructive for us. A quick diagnostic check that you and I could do is you could look at your past week. Sunday is the first day of the week, biblically reckoned. Look at your past week. Now as you approach this new week, you can ask yourself, looking at my past week, did I serve the Lord Christ and others in Jesus' name or myself more? I think it's a great diagnostic check. And one of the greatest motivations to tip the scale further in seeing yourself as a bondservant and living out bond service to Christ is to say, I want to avoid behavioral parallels with the false teachers and or apostates who are described in Jude and appointed for God's judgment. So I want to live out my bond service to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then we see him identify the recipients of this epistle. And I'm going to do something I don't normally do here at this point. I'm going to jump to a quick application before I give you the exposition because I think it's important for you to hear what's being said through these lenses. Jude is going to provide a triad. And he uses a lot of triad. He he gives a lot of sets of three in this epistle. Here's the first one. And in this first set of three, he's going to identify Christians. So he's writing to Christians and he identifies them in this way. He's going to give three descriptive terms to define who, or identify who, describe who Christians are. And I just want to tell you, as you're hearing this, please know if you are in Christ, if you have come to the cross and you've seen Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, this describes you. So I'm jumping to application because I want you to see what comes through those lenses. I don't know what other people have said about you. I don't know how people have defined you. I don't know if somebody has has said to you, you are lazy, you are good for nothing, you are this, you are that. I don't know how people have described you. But I know if you are in Christ, this is how God describes you. At least it's part of the description that God has for his people. So your ears may want to be particularly perked to hear what God thinks of his people and how he describes his people. We got three identifications here. First, Jude writes that he is writing to those who are called, to those who are called. You might say, the called are those who always pick up the phone. I had seen in my um, studying that there was a a phrase that, it was something along the lines of, you know, you may be called, but you have to pick up the phone. And I would say, well, the called, they always pick up the phone. When the call comes, they pick up. I'll explain what I mean. Um, This call is not the external call that's referenced here. The external call means the public proclamation of the gospel. That's like when Jesus said, many are called, few are chosen. That's the external call. That's like the exception to how the New Testament uses the word called. When you go through the New Testament and you see that word called used over and over and over again, you see that the majority of time it's speaking of this kind of calling. This kind of calling. This kind of calling that's spoken of here refers to the irresistible calling of the Spirit of God upon the elect. To be called in the common New Testament sense of the word is inextricably connected to being chosen by God. Romans chapter 8, verse 30 says that all that God has predestined, he has also called. And all that he has called, he has justified. And all whom he's justified, he has glorified. So it speaks to the beginning and end, as it were, of God's salvific work in his people. The word called, however, concerns what is often referred to as the effectual call. I think the best way I can maybe describe it to you is through the analogy of what happened when Jesus called forth Lazarus from the grave. I think a good way to understand the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit is to see it as analogous to what happened in that moment. There is Lazarus in the tomb. He is a dead man. Yet when the call of Christ comes forth, Lazarus, come forth. What happens? Lazarus, you might say, picked up the phone. (laughs) And he came. That's what it means to be called. It's like that when a person is saved. They are called by God and in God's time, in God's time, they believe the gospel and they come forth out of spiritual death into spiritual life. Second, Jude identifies believers as those who were sanctified by God the Father. Now, some of the older manuscripts read this way, not as sanctified by God the Father, but as beloved in God the Father. Both are true. You can look in the New Testament and clearly you see that both are true. Believers are those who are sanctified, that word just means set apart, Believers are those who are set apart by God, as understood in the doctrine of election, so as to be not only his children. So believers are set apart by God, chosen by God, out of this world, out of darkness. They're set apart by him to be his own children. But also they are set apart by him so as to be a collective gift to his son. You see this kind of language in John chapter 17. Verse 6, when Jesus told the Father concerning his disciples, Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And you gave them to me. It's important to know who you are and who the Bible says you are. Yes, it's important to know whose you are, particularly if you are a believer. And here you get a kind of a glimpse of both. You know who you are, that you've been set apart by God, and that you're beloved by God, and that you are his possession. And the two work together. If you have been set apart by God, it's because you have been eternally loved by God. Just to think about that, it's, it's startling. So you've been set apart. And that language also connotes kind of how in the Old Testament, there would be certain things that were set apart for sacred use. Things in the tabernacle, for instance, they were set apart from common use for sacred use. If you are a Christian, you've been set apart by God to have a relationship with him. To enjoy him forever and to serve him forever. You've been set apart by him, but what drove the setting apart? Well, to go to the other manuscript possibility, the fact that you were beloved by God. To use language from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world and he predestined you in love. It's startling to think that there's never been a moment of existence in which the believer, has not been loved. Because God has been for all of eternity. God has no beginning. And God has always known the people that would be his. And in the mystery of God's sovereign election, there's been a people that have been set apart by him and loved by him before the creation of the world. And third, he calls them, Jude in his identification of his recipients, preserved in Jesus Christ. A beautiful phrase, It could be rendered as kept for Jesus Christ. It could be rendered as kept by Jesus Christ. And again, all of those are true. Believers are preserved in Christ, having been unified to Christ by the Holy Spirit, baptized into Christ by the Spirit. We are kept for Christ. We are the bride that is to be presented to him on that day. And we are kept by Christ. We are gripped in his hand, and nobody can take away those who are gripped in his hand amazing truth. This speaks to the believer's security. Now think about this, how important this would be. Jews has got a letter that's coming forward where he's going to explain a lot of difficult things that they had to deal with and the, and the way they had to contend for the faith, and he's reminding them up front that they are people who have been called by God, set apart by God, are loved by God, and are preserved and kept in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. So the information that was coming about the false teachers wasn't to get them quaking in their boots, wondering if they too might come under the sway of others who had fallen away. Rather, they were to understand the forthcoming information in light of their position. You are to understand the forthcoming information in light of your position. That if you are in Christ, you're called, beloved, set apart, preserved in, and kept for Jesus Christ. That brings us to Jude's prayerful greeting. In verse 2, we read, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. After a brief introduction, verse 1, Jude proceeds to a kind of prayerful wish as the conclusion of his greeting. Now, if I had to quiz you, I would give you a pop quiz in this moment. I'm not, don't worry, you have to call it out, uh, call out the answer out loud. But if I were to say, what word do you think is missing in this greeting that you're used to hearing? On a weekly basis, when I speak to you during the announcements, that word grace, that word grace isn't there, though the sense of it is nonetheless there. Because all of these gifts that he describes, mercy, peace, and love, they proceed forth from grace. I love looking at these words and seeing them as the believer's continual weekly forecast. you think of a weatherman on the TV, on a particular channel, providing a look ahead at the upcoming seven days and saying something like, we're looking at a mix of sunshine and clouds in the week ahead. And sometimes our providence can be like that, right? In the week ahead, there could be sunshine and clouds. There could be you know, beautiful days and there could be days filled with metaphoric rain. But something does not change. And one of those things that does not change, one of those somethings, is the fact that mercy, peace, and love are constantly lavished upon God's people. What do you need in the midst of a stressful time? The kind in which Jude's recipients were living, the kind in which you and I are living, what do you need? Hear the word of the Lord. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Hope to drive that home a little bit more, but first let's understand what's being said here. It's again another triad. Look, we're in the beginning of Jude, in second verse, and all of a sudden we see two triads. Here's the second one, mercy, peace, and love. The word mercy is a word that essentially speaks to God's help, God's compassion and sympathy, which then leads forth to the action of his help in a time of need. It's the Greek word, eleos, speaks of compassion and sympathy that manifests to a believer in their time of need. So while believers have received the ultimate mercy of the forgiveness of sins, and you look on later in this epistle, you see Jude references how believers are to be looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life, implying the mercy that's to be displayed at the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we see Jude prayerfully wishing for mercy to be manifested to Christians during their experiences in this life. It's a compassion-driven manifestation of help. In our exposition of First Timothy... I went through how you could see um, human-to-human examples of this in the scriptures. That we are to show mercy, having been driven by compassion, seeing a need. We are not just to see the need, we then act on the need and we show mercy. But it's mercy driven from compassion. Here we're getting the idea of this God, God-directed mercy. That God is directing this mercy towards believers. And then by the time you get to the end of the epistle, you see how Jude is calling believers to show mercy to others. Those who are caught in false teaching or whatever, that they are to be vessels of mercy. Having received mercy, we are to display mercy. Second, there's peace. The word peace was part of a common greeting in the Semitic world, um, but its use here transcends that. This isn't just a common greeting, this is a prayerful wish. It speaks of, you might say, grace wrought serenity that is not dependent upon circumstances. Remember Jesus in the gospel of John chapter 16 spoke to his disciples telling them that in this world they would have tribulation and yet in him they could have peace. So you could have them both at the same time. Tribulation and peace both at the same time. This peace is a tranquility. a kind of resting in God as it were despite the circumstances around you. This is not the positional peace that they had as a result of coming to faith in Christ. When you come to Christ you have that ultimate peace. Peace with God, Romans chapter 5 verse 1, through our Lord Jesus Christ, positional peace. You're not at enmity with God, but from that place, from that place of having peace with God, no longer being an enemy to God, being reconciled to God, from that place then flows the subsequent peace, situational peace that can guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus regardless of the circumstances that you find yourself in. That's the kind of peace that's spoken of here. And it's beautiful to think that believers can draw from a never-ending well of God's peace. You can't exhaust it, but you can always go to that well, and you could always, by God's grace, draw from it. It's not hard to see why Jude's readers would need um, this in the midst of false teachers who had plagued the assembly. And when false teachers are found in the assembly, we see this over and over, whether it's in 1 and 2 Timothy, whether it's in Titus, whether it's implied here, They cause division and they bring forth trouble. So all the more the people of God needed peace and they needed to be vessels of peace. And third, there was love. Jude told Christians either explicitly by calling them beloved of God or implicitly by saying that they were sanctified by God, set apart by him. He told them essentially that they were loved by God. And the idea here appears to be that they'd become increasingly aware of it, that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to them. And that the fruit of love, as a result, would be shown more in their lives. I see parallels here with what Paul wrote to the church of Ephesus. That he prayed that they would better understand the incomprehensible love of Christ. And that by doing so, they would be filled with the fullness of God. They'd be more loving as a result. And let us not miss how Jude prayed that these graces would come. He said, grace and peace, or mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to them word for multiplied means increased, increased abundantly, increased exponentially. The first time that this word is used in the New Testament, it's used in Matthew 24 verse 12, when Jesus said that lawlessness would abound, same word, as the end approached. The last time this word is used is right here in Jude verse 2 where believers might be reminded of these graces, mercy, peace, and love, that it might be multiplied towards them. Now, I want to say this because I want you to not just look at this as just a, oh, this is just a common greeting. It's just a regular greeting. Let's get on to the content. I want to use language from Christ in the Gospels to apply this home to you. You might remember this from one of our classes, Jesus saying these words, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I say to you right now, Have you not heard what was spoken to you by God? This gets me excited. To think that in this moment right now, that by the grace of God, you're here to hear mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. I would argue, it's my opinion, if you don't hear it through that lens, you're not hearing it in the way you ought to hear it. Because Jude was writing to Christians, and if you're a Christian, you say, in this moment, God is speaking to me. And maybe you say, I need to hear that. I need mercy. I need the manifestation of God's compassionate help in my time of need. I need that now. I need peace. I feel like I am flying amidst turbulence, and I feel like my mind is scattered. I need peace. I need love. I need to be reminded that the God who I know loves me, that he does love me, and I need to be a vessel of mercy, peace, and love to others. Well, mercy Peace and love be multiplied to you. Praise God. Well, now, having provided that blessed greeting, Jude, with a sense of urgency, proceeded to provide the church with the Spirit-inspired call to defend the faith. In verse 3 we read, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So notice how Jude addresses his readers. First, he calls them beloved. It's a warm address. It's a tender address. It connotes care and affection and love. He didn't say to whom it may concern. He said beloved, beloved. I think, since the older manuscripts say in verse 1 that Jude is writing to those who are called and beloved, I think it's interesting that Jude's sharing the identification of the people of God that God has for his own people. That God is addressing his people as beloved and then Jude comes and writes beloved. I think that in itself is instructive for us. Our view of one another should reflect what God's view of one another is. That's how we should view each other. Well, It's in this verse that you get the sense that this wasn't the epistle that Jude was planning to write. I love thinking of it this way. It's amazing. He wasn't planning to write this letter. The Jude epistle that you have in your Bible is the letter that he had not planned to write. He told them that he had planned to write. He was very diligent to write. And that language there connotes eagerness. like, Like he was intentional about writing this other kind of letter. What kind of letter? He was going to write to them concerning our common salvation. That was his intention. He wanted to write about their common salvation. But instead he wrote a letter to warn the church not of the threat that was on their doorstep, but the one that had already entered the house, so to speak. It threatened the gospel, the integrity of the gospel, the health of the church. And I think here we have a good lesson to observe as well. Namely, Jude did not do simply what he wanted to do. But as he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, he did what God would have him to do. I think that's so instructive. I want to write a treatise on our common salvation. That's what I want to do. But instead, he doesn't do that. He shifts gears, carried along by the Holy Spirit, and he writes and exhorts them to contend for the faith. And that's not to say that systematic theology isn't important. It's not to say that writing a great epistle or a a, a letter or even a book about a great subject like the amazing theme of the believer's shared salvation isn't of immense importance. It is. But sometimes the need of the moment is a direct address of the problem at hand. I want to give a quick parenthetical note because there would be some who would look back at the past two years, and I know this because people have spoken to me personally about this. Not many at all. Um, And there would be some who would question the times in which I've addressed certain topics. And say, just stick to preaching verse by verse through the Scriptures. Don't address certain topics. And what I would say is that sometimes there are issues at hand that need to be addressed. Of course, you want to do it from a biblical perspective. Even when you're addressing an issue... You want to address it biblically, right? You want to stay tethered to the text of Scripture. But sometimes there are matters that are so pressing that can influence the worldview of believers within a local church that I would argue it is important to speak to those issues biblically. And there are different examples that I could reference, but I won't at this point in time because I do think it's very important that sometimes it has to be a direct address of problems that are at hand. As kind of another aside, sometimes the creeping in of error uses the side door. The crosshair is not overtly aimed at central doctrines, but the strategy is, in my opinion, craftier. It's a little bit of the long game of approach. The goal might be the fifth domino, but to get to the fifth domino, you strategically start by knocking down one domino. And so little by little, if you can knock down one domino, you can get to the fifth domino eventually. You might start with a doctrine that will sow division and discord among the brethren, but the goal is to undermine the integrity of God's word and the inerrancy of scripture. But you start with the first domino, knowing that if you're patient, you'll get to the fifth one. And so some, some of the things that we've addressed in the past two years might seem um, adjacent, and they are adjacent. To that which is central, but from a platform of that which is central, things need to be addressed, lest people be um, deceived. Now, before we get to um, what Jude does address, he told them that he initially desired to write about our common salvation. Now, the word "common" here does not mean or ordinary. Though it can be used in that way. The word can be used to speak of that which is ordinary. But Jude is not using it in that way. He's using it to mean shared. Our shared salvation. Our shared salvation. Uh, Paul used the same word when he was writing to Titus. In Titus chapter 1 verse 4. Referencing their common or shared faith. That's the idea. He had wanted to write about their common salvation. What they shared together. The fact that they had the same God who is Savior. To use language he's going to use at the end of the epistle. That this God who is their Savior saved them through, the, through his eternally begotten Son, who is the Savior of all who believe in him for the forgiveness of sins. He wanted to talk about that. We wanted to write about that. That they would be saved from the judgment to come and from the wrath to come. But instead, what he does here is he exhorts them to contend for the faith. Now, a quick side note about that. I think it's worth noting that all who are participants in the grace of salvation who received this radical remission of sins through faith in Christ, got there the same way. It's a common salvation that we share, and we all have shared the same point of entry into that salvation. No matter who you are, no matter where you come from, whatever your background is, however much of a sinner you were prior to knowing Christ, your socioeconomic status or whatever, we all came through the same door, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we all share the same common salvation. The same salvation that works life-changing, soul-saving wonders in all who experience it. So Jude was going to write about that, but instead, carried along by the Holy Spirit, he wrote them, exhorting them to contend earnestly for the faith. Earnestly for the faith. This is that word that you might be familiar to hearing, agonizumai. Only here it's used with a, a preposition that intensifies it. It's the only time it's used like that in the New Testament, right here. So he wrote them to contend. It's the word that's used... To speak of an, an athletic competition, somebody in the realm of athletics or somebody engaged in military battle that they would agonize or battle or strive. And now it's intensified by the preposition epi. And he's saying, I'm writing you to earnestly contend for the faith. The faith. What does he mean by the faith? The body of truth delivered to God's people found in the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament alike. How is this faith described? It is described as the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith has been delivered. The package of the body of truth has arrived. In the apostolic age, it was delivered through the apostles and prophets. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, communicated through New Testament writers. And we have no business to add to it or take away from it. It's not my truth or your truth. The faith is the body of truth that has been delivered to God's people. And I think there's a quick apologetic note here uh, for us as well. This fact, the fact that the faith has been delivered once and for all to the saints, is a good reminder, as noted in the ESV study Bible, that when you have different religions, like Mormonism, like Islam, even like Roman Catholicism, that have added to the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, that such adding disqualifies them. You just can't add to it. You can't have Joseph Smith come around and say, you know, I found some golden plates and now we're going to add to the body of revelation. You can't have M- Muhammad come around and say, you know, I had an angel come to me despite what Paul said in Galatians chapter one that if any man or angel preaches to you any other gospel than what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. You can't have him come around and say, well, I've got new revelation. You can't have those in the magisterium of the Roman Catholic church saying, you know what? We're going to add new revelation. We're going to add holy days of obligation. We're going to tell people if they don't come to mass on all saints day or the assumption of mary it's a mortal sin on their soul and they can't get into heaven you can't do that the faith has been once and for all delivered to the saints and here is a good reason to defend that conviction scripture says it the faith has been once and for all delivered to the saints and now we see the reason most immediately in this epistle why jude's readers had to contend earnestly in verse four we read for certain men have crept in unnoticed who were long ago marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So first, you see how these men are described. They're described as those who crept in unnoticed. So in other words, they came from the outside. Paul warned the church he warned the church that there would be those who would rise up from within. And that's always a danger to you know, be aware of as well. But these came from without. Maybe they were, as some commentators noted, traveling Christian teachers or posing themselves as such. And then they came and they crept in and they didn't show their false doctrine overtly. I think it's important to know that somebody who believes false doctrine or somebody who's a false teacher doesn't usually arrive in the assembly and say, Hi. My name is Bill, and I love false doctrine. Been around, doesn't usually happen like that. The one who is loud and proud of their favorite false teacher, easier to deal with, right? They're kind of bold about it. I love listening to so-and-so. You shouldn't listen to so-and-so. Okay. I love listening to so-and-so. Okay, no, you shouldn't listen to so-and-so. Now, that's easier to deal with. These guys, more crafty. These guys kept it below the surface. Their convictions that we're going to see that would lead to problems within the local, local church, it was like they leaked just a little bit of carbon monoxide and the detectors weren't going off for people right away. And maybe there was something wrong with the detectors, whatever it might be, however you work the metaphor out. They were in the church and they were causing damage to the church. They were spots in the love feasts of the people of God, as we'll see a little bit later on in this epistle. As Spurgeon noted in the message, spots in our Feasts of Charity, he said, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. And I want you to notice what Jude is doing. He's seeking to expose them. Sometimes Christians can be so concerned that it's not polite to expose false teaching that they just won't do it. You say, no, no, we have to be polite. Therefore, we can't talk about false teachers or false teaching. Notice what Jude is doing. He's going to describe them in great detail. My guess is he didn't name names here because there were a decent amount of them. And so he's like, I'm going to give you the description. And if they fit this bill, be on guard against them. And again, why is it instructive for us? In the midst of what's going on in the world, where is his concern? His concern is for truth. His concern is for the church. His concern is for believers to walk in purity and so on. You'll see that. But he's seeking to expose them. More about that, Lord willing, in the days ahead. He further described them as those who were long ago marked out for this condemnation. The Greek word for marked out could speak of being written before and uh, prografo is the word written before. So Jude may be speaking to the fact that these were individuals who were predicted by God to come. And there were recent predictions of their arrival. We look at Matthew 7, Jesus warned his disciples about false prophets. You look at Paul, Paul warned about false prophets coming or false teachers arising from within the midst of the assembly. You look at Peter in Second Peter. We see Peter warning in Second Peter chapter two, verses one and two. But Jude here appears to be speaking further back, speaking about long ago, long ago. He notes later on in this epistle, he says Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also. Verse fourteen of Jude. So that might be the long ago that Jude has in mind. Not to mention the Old Testament, by the way, has a lot to say about false teachers and their condemnation. I can give you a list of references. Deuteronomy 18, verse 20. Jeremiah 23. Pretty much the majority of the chapter. There are plenty of verses that could be referenced. So think about this. These people crept into the church unnoticed, but yet from God's perspective, no, I predicted they would come. And here they are. They weren't unnoticed by God. God noticed them. God noticed them. Jude describes them as ungodly. In other words, they were those who were without reverence towards God. They were moral rebels who raised their fists against God, acting against him and not properly reflecting him. They were not godly. That's the idea of that word, just a negation of godly. But what exactly were they doing? And I think this is instructive for us as we get ready to end our study today. What were they doing? They were among those who turned the grace of our God into lewdness. They took a concept, a glorious concept, one that we sing about regularly. The theme of the first two songs we sung today were grace. Basically, every song that we sing has as its theme grace. They took a concept like grace, and what did they do? They turned it. They twisted it. And what did they do with it? They used it as an excuse for licentiousness, for license, for lewdness. The word that's used here can speak of unrestrained behavior, a behavior that's not impeded by shame. It's often connected with sexual immorality. So, they took this doctrine of grace, blessed doctrine, and they used it as a justification. Not for the doctrine of justification as we know it, justification being declared righteous in the sight of God. They used it as a justification for their licentiousness, unrestraint, and sexual immorality. Now, here, let me just remind you, just so everybody knows this, so we're all on the same page. Don't be surprised when false teachers quote Scripture. Don't be surprised if there shows up someone in the assembly and they know a lot of Scripture, but then all of a sudden you see them twisting other things in the Scriptures. You have to be on guard against those kind of things. Don't be surprised when they happen. That's the kind of thing that's predicted in the Scriptures. Paul, Peter spoke about Paul's writings being twisted as false teachers do, not only to Paul's writings, but even the rest of Scriptures, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. But not only do they twist Scriptures They twist doctrines, like the doctrine of grace. Now please, we, myself included, every one of us, I would argue we fool ourselves if we think that such a potential is not a threat to us. When you look through the New Testament, isn't it interesting how many times we see examples of churches or believers not rightly appropriating the doctrine of divine grace Think about James. James writes to people to whom he has to remind faith without works is dead. Because some would say, you know, you have faith and I have works, or I have faith and you have works. You had to remind them, no, 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 it's not just about Saving faith is, is yes the soil from which those works come. But if if you say you are have that true saving faith soil, then the works ought to come. Think about Paul writing to the Romans. Some contended that they should continue in sin so that grace might abound. They had a theology to their continuing in sin. If I sin more, the grace of God's going to abound more, and God's going to get more glory for His grace. You think about First Corinthians chapter five. Paul told the church of Corinth that they were glorying in the fact, implicitly, that they were tolerating this man who was living in unrepentant sexual immorality. And they gloried in the fact that they could have leaven, leavening the church and being among them and not doing anything about it. So I say that to say the temptation for us to abuse the doctrine of grace and to misappropriate it is real. The reality of grace should not diminish the blessed call to holy living. If Jesus is Lord, then we must live in light of his lordship. The scripture is clear that willful continuance and unrepentant sin does not manifest sonship. It manifests rebellion. That's not harsh speech. That's the kind of thing you see in Galatians 5, verses 18 and 19. Paul did not want believers to be deceived. Do not be deceived that those who continue in the works of the flesh that he lists will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does this mean that a preacher should not preach about the grace of God? Of course not. The grace of God, we glory in the grace of God. It truly is greater than all of our sin. By the grace of God, our sins have been washed away by the blood of Christ. But the grace of God, per Titus 2, also teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Grace is not an excuse to live in defiant rebellion against God under the guise of appreciation. I'll say that again. Grace is not an excuse to live in defiant defiant rebellions against God under the guise of appreciation. Yes, I know I'm walking in the exact opposite direction that God has prescribed, but I am indeed thankful for grace. They not only twisted the doctrine of grace, but Jude continued by writing, and they deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier manuscripts do not include the word God, so Jude might have been using two different words here to speak of Jesus' lordship, despotes and kurios. And the idea might very well be that these people who were in the assembly, they denied Jesus' lordship with their actions. They perhaps Their denials perhaps became even more outright and flagrant than that. But clearly they denied Jesus by denying his teaching and turning the doctrine of grace into lewdness. As one commentator wrote, the point is that if people fail to obey someone, whether or not they call him Lord or Master, they are in fact denying the fact that he is their Lord and Master. So the language that we have might be sound, but if our living is not, that's a problem. So I conclude at this point with two things to say in light of the message. You'll notice the two different tones, right? You got the first bit of the message where you're like, you're reminded of who you are in Christ. That you are called, that you have been set apart by God, loved by God, and that you are preserved in and for Jesus Christ. that mercy, grace and peace is multiplied to you. right? So hear what is said in verses three and four, and the warnings that have come by way of application, from that platform. If you are in Christ Jesus, then today is a reminder for you to commit yourself to living for His glory, living under His Lordship. Don't, don't just don't put it off don't just make this be another sermon make this be by God's grace by the Holy Spirit still working within you a day in which you look at your life and you say I want to pledge myself to the commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ I want to serve the local church I want to celebrate the Lord's table with believers I want to evangelize my family I want to pray I want to spend time in the word I have a short vapor of life on this earth I want to do the hard things and I understand sometimes there are hard things and you don't know how to do what you ought to do and you're trying to find ways to do what you ought to do and sometimes it's not clear and you got to keep figuring it out I understand those things, but brethren, I urge you in the days in which we are living, do not become so bogged down with the things that are going on in the world around you that you forget that which is central. The gospel, the truth that is inseparable to it, contending with love and compassion as we're going to see in the rest of this epistle for the gospel, and making sure that by God's grace, you are walking in holiness, appreciating the grace of God, treasuring the grace of God, and not using it as an excuse for license, for lewdness of one kind or another. Rather, it becomes the driving force in your life leading you to godliness. It's grace that drives you. It's forgiveness that drives you. It's the love of God that drives you. It's the good news of the gospel that drives you. You take the doctrine of the grace of God and you say, oh God, I'm so sorry for the ways I've fallen short, but today is a new day and my sins are forgiven. Your mercies are more than my sins. And now, Father, today, afresh, I want to live in light of Jesus's lordship. That's what you do. You don't walk in the pattern of false teachers who serve only themselves, but afreshly today, afresh today, you say, I am the Lord Jesus's. I have been bought. I know there's a world that that is around me that has a lot of craziness going on, but right now I have an assignment. I have to love the God who loved me from eternity past, if you could speak of eternity in categories of time. (laughs) I have the God who's lovingly keeping me in the present. And I want to walk in the light of his loving lordship right now. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. No greater motivation to walk under the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ than the fact that your Lord went to the cross so that you could forever be his bride. There's no greater motivation than that. That God has loved you from eternity past and sent his son to die for your sins so that you would not be your own, but that you might be his. There's no greater motivation than that. So learn a lesson from the apostates that Jude speaks of. Don't take the grace of God and use it as an excuse for license. Take the grace of God, as it were, and use it for what it is meant to be, a driving motivation for every ounce of obedience that you want to offer and worship to your Savior. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the table, Lord, we pray that you might search us Uh, Search us, Lord. I pray for uh, everyone in this room that there just might be this this gracious searching where by your grace we come to you and we say, Lord, I, I want to afresh live under the light of the Lordship of your Son. And Father, if there are areas of our lives that need to be submitted afresh to the Lordship of Jesus, may today be that new day and may with May we, with gratitude, in light of how you identify us, in light of the grace that you've lavished upon us, Lord, may we reject the error of those described in Jude's epistle, and may we, Heavenly Father, run in the path of your commandments. To use language from the psalmist in Psalm 119, might you, as it were, enlarge our hearts afresh today to run in the path of your commandments. Oh, you are so great. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for every bit of sinfulness that we've committed that's been paid for by the blood of your son. And thank you for the infinite motivation that we ought to have to surrender our short vapors of a life on this earth to glorifying him with rendering our lives unto him. What an amazing savior we serve. Lord, help us to contend. Help us, Heavenly Father, to do so with compassion and love. Help us to walk in purity and holiness and help it, Heavenly Father, to be all-driven from grace and mercy that you have lavished upon us, peace that you've given us, and love that you've had for us for all of time, as it were, and beyond time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.